Lord Jesus, would you meet us? Would you, Lord, give us yourself? Meet with us now, we pray in your own name, Lord. Amen. A woman writing about the life of someone named Dorothy Day. She says this, I picked up a button about a decade ago with a quote attributed to Dorothy Day on it. If you have two coats, you have stolen one from the poor. I loved this saying. I loved the strength of conviction, the easy black and white application. I read more about Dorothy and became smitten. Her severe face and warm hands and intense sound bites were so soothing to my soul. As I first read of her life and work and the Catholic worker movement she helped start, I affixed that button to the front of my one orange plaid corduroy coat and tromped around my neighborhood during the cold, gray Portland winters, hoping others would read it and be changed. If I'm honest, part of me wanted others to know how radical I was, how I had eschewed the things of the world, how hard I was trying to follow Jesus. Now, Years later, I have three coats. And we all say, only three? The orange plaid corduroy, a raincoat, since I live in Oregon, and a longer warm coat I bought for the three winters I spent in the Midwest. My Dorothy Day button now lives in a junk drawer because I can't bear to wear it if it isn't true. Should I give one of my coats away? To whom should I give it? I live and work in a refugee and immigrant community. There are dozens of people I know who could use a coat. How do I pick? How do I navigate the enormity of the needs of the world and my own response to them? I still don't know. And yet, even as I think these thoughts and feel like a failed radical, the words in life of Dorothy Day mean more to me than ever. I take some comfort in knowing that Dorothy struggled with these same questions and contradictions throughout her life. Her feelings, I suspect, were complicated. She was a unique and complex woman. She was driven, proud, dogmatic. She lived with fierce conviction and solidarity with the poor. She was also unsure, doubtful, and depressed from time to time due to the enormity of the suffering surrounding her. From a young age, Dorothy showed evidence of both her passion for justice and her quick mind. She was an activist, a sharp student, a curator of deep conversations. Dorothy Day is such a towering figure that even this little tiny book about her has two introductions. They can't get it all done in one. So here's a smidgen of the other one. Dorothy Day's passion for peace and social justice and her dedication to serving the poor are legendary, and her faith continues to grow. Despite her own protest, admirers have petitioned the Vatican to make her a saint. She was one of four people Pope Francis named as truly great Americans. Yet combing through Dorothy's books and articles and her private letters and journals, one discovers an underappreciated dimension of her life. Where did a conflicted young woman find the inner strength to answer the clear call she heard from God? How did she go on to live such an active, selfless life for so many decades without losing heart or burning out? Unlike other collections, this little volume brings together Dorothy's thoughts on the life of discipleship, the reckless way of love to which Jesus calls his followers. 
Dorothy's dogged struggle to hold on to faith, her love for those hardest to love, and her rootedness in prayer can guide and encourage each of us in our own attempts to follow more faithfully in the way of Jesus. And that, friends, is our question for this morning. How do we find the strength, the sustenance of body, mind, and spirit to walk into the calling which God has given us to walk in? We come now to the beginning, the second, you know, sort of the still the second beginning of a new year by the school calendar and all the rest. This is the last Sunday of summer, technically speaking. And this is the one time a year when following service we have our annual meeting, which is actually a a good time and a worthwhile thing. So it's a great moment to ask the question, who are we, what are we doing, and specifically, why do we do it the way we do it? Super brief, what are we doing here? Who are we? Well, in the midst of the collapse of so much of the American church and the desperation spasms that others are having about it and all the rest, in the midst of tectonic shifts in life and in technology and in even just the very question, what does it mean to be a human being? In the midst of all that, we as Trinity are living forward. We're glad. We're grateful. We're aware. We're aware that there is much of which we're not aware. We're fragile. We're vulnerable. We're wounded. We're gifted. We're super smart. We're amazingly dense. We're sober, we're wonder-filled, we're befuddled, we're confident, we're grieving, we're joyful, all those things and more, all at once. We're committed to courageous vulnerability with each other. We're committed to living with a confident humility. We're committed to striving in our lives individually and together for genuine wholeness. We believe that these things come of a fresh encounter with the living Jesus Christ. Jesus, who knows what it is to be a human being. He walked among us as a human being. He faced, we're told, all the temptations and struggles that we face, and yet he kept the path, and therefore he is gentle and kind with us. So this morning, Jesus will show us how to be sustained, body, mind, and spirit, and carry on in the midst of whatever it is that happens next in the world, being these people who are walking forward in him. So last week, we saw the start of the long argument in John's gospel. We saw the start of this long argument that starts somewhere around chapter 5, and it goes all the way to the Passion, basically, with some important and poignant interruptions that are, in a sense, commentary, act, enacted commentary on the argument itself. And we saw Jesus come to the place where he looks at the other side of the whole argument, and he finally gets to the point where he just gives them the bottom line. He looks at them and he says, The trouble at root. Don't you love it when I say things like root and rule? Just, you know, I love saying the word R-U-R-A-L. Nobody can understand me. Rule. It's easier. 
right? Anyway, at root, Jesus looks at him and says, the problem is you do not have the love of God in yourselves. You do not have the love of God in yourselves. So this all carries on a bit. So Jesus now does one of these highly symbolic actions that he purposefully does. He goes across the sea. He crosses the sea. Now this is the Sea of Tiberias, John tells us. Only John tells us it's the Sea of Tiberias. Commonly called the Sea of Galilee, but Tiberias was the new emperor and there'd been a town built on its western coast for him. And so John goes out of his way to point out here that this is also called the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus is crossing a sea. There is the new intrusion of the empire of the day. You get a feeling for anything in the Old Testament. People follow Jesus across the sea. He goes up a mountain. The people follow him because only John tells us They see the signs Jesus is doing. Moses doing signs in the presence of the Pharaoh. The people following Moses across a sea. Moses going up on a mountain to meet with God. Jesus going up on a mountain and the people follow to meet with God. It's the time, we're told, of the Passover. When the Jews remember how God delivered them. Jesus knows full well what he's doing. John tells us as much. He tells us that he asks them, how are we going to feed all these people? And he asked them because he already knows what he has in mind. He doesn't just mean about feeding them. It's the whole thing. The whole thing is a very intentional, purposeful, symbolic, loaded action by Jesus. He's giving them clues that who he is and what he is is so much greater. It's everythinger, everythinger. More personal inside, bigger in scope, deeper, wider, more beautiful, more whatever. It's everythinger than they would imagine. It's the exodus finished, completed, consummated for individual people in their hearts being set free from slaveries, the slaveries that are put upon them, the slaveries that we put on ourselves that we don't realize are slaveries until we can't get out of them, so then we deny that they're slaveries. The slaveries that we put on other people by leading our selfish consumer lives and keeping folks in economic slavery around the world. Jesus is leading them out into a new cosmos, a new life individually, a new life together as his family. He's going to complete the exodus. So he gets them thinking about the exodus. So he says, well, you feed them. What he's doing is he's loading the disciples up now to begin to get them ready. He's sowing a little seed. I think think it's a brilliant thing that the basketball coach at my favorite school does every preseason. Every preseason, they schedule this tiny little school who isn't any good at all, but they play in the same style as Michael's favorite school. And so what my coach is doing super early in the season is he's saying, hey, I just want to give you a clue about what it'll be like to play against that good team. Michael's team is really good. They do this really well. This team doesn't do it that well, but they still, you know, they still space on the court the same way. They still move the ball the same way. They still shoot the same kinds of shots. So I'm just giving you a warm-up clue. And that's what Jesus is doing here. I'm sowing a seed even into your subconscious 
so that when I have ascended into heaven and you're left around sitting and looking at each other and going, how on earth do you feed them? So Jesus, you know how it goes. He feeds them. And then he crosses back over the sea and the argument starts up again, as it will do throughout all those chapters. And then Jesus says three profound things that are meant to explain what it all means. The first one, he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I said to you that, I, that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. He says, I'm from the Father. I do the Father's will. What I'm doing here, yeah, it's big, but it's not just me. It's, it's God. It's the whole thing. And so he basically, he says, the first thing he basically says is believe it. Notice how big it is and believe. Get it as your story. And we're told then, shortly thereafter, we're told that the Jews grumbled. Now, this is, this is the word that in the Greek version of the, the ancient Greek version of the Old Testament, this is the word gunguzo, which is almost automatopoeic, right? You can just hear them. They're gunguzoing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, know, you can almost hear it, right? And th- that word in the Exodus is for when the people of Israel are saying, wait a minute, we were happier in Egypt. We had water. We had food. We knew the rhythm of the day. We don't have any water out here, Moses, and they gunguzo, and they grumble. And Jesus, now the Jews begin to gunguzo, same word. They're the people who don't buy into the Exodus. And they say, what does he mean he's the bread that came down from heaven? Oh, give me a break. This is the son of Joseph and Mary. We know who he is. Jesus says, do not grumble among yourselves. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. He says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And thus began an argument that has never since ceased. If anything, it's only gotten wider and wider. The Jews disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So then, third move. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, that's, that's Hebrew emphasis. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the, son of, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. And here John uses an unusual verb for for chew on, or he for eat. He literally uses the verb chew on. It's literally, you know, like a, like a horse or a cow chewing on cud. Like, take your time. Work your jaw. Don't hurry it up. This is the bread, Jesus said, that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In this, Jesus is giving us the ultimate, what we here have called organic spiritual moment. He says to them, I came down from heaven. 
He says, I came down from where I was with the Father. The Father has life in himself. I have life in myself. You don't have life in yourself. So if you eat my flesh, then you'll have life in yourself. So today's profound biblical insight is this. One plus one equals two. You don't have life in yourself. Jesus has life in himself. So get Jesus inside yourself and you have life in yourself. Amen? Right? So yeah, that's the mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Absolutely. Memorize the scripture. Read the scripture. Study the scripture. Read good books. Absolutely, it's the mind. Yes, it's the spirit. Absolutely, get filled with the Holy Spirit. And again and again and again, as often as we need it. Absolutely, learn to listen to this Holy Spirit to trust the Holy Spirit, to be gentle. Absolutely, your mind. Absolutely, your spirit. Why not the body? Why not the body too? Jesus is just saying, hey, you're embodied creatures. It's good. I know I made you that way. We said it was good when we did it, the Father and the Spirit and I. So, yeah, renew the mind. Yes, get a new spirit. What about the body? Can we do anything for that? This is prefiguring of Eucharist. As Anglicans, we believe that Jesus is spiritually present in the Eucharist, spiritual presence. This is is what drives our Baptist and our Catholic friends crazy about us. They're like, just pick, would you? Is it or isn't it? Spiritually, it certainly is. Jesus is spiritually present. I was talking to a prison chaplain because I was going to be visiting someone in the prison and I was asking him, how's that work here? And we got done. He was a Pentecostal guy who ran incredible prison ministry in prisons all around the state. And we get to the end of the, um, end of the conversation, different state, different time. And um, he says, hey, you're Anglican, right? And I say, yeah. He said, can I ask you a question? I thought, oh boy, here we go. I said, Sure. He says, what is it you guys believe about the Eucharist anyway? I said, well, we believe in spiritual presence. He said, what do you mean by that? I said, we believe that Jesus is actually spiritually present in the body and the blood and meets us and fills us. He looked at me and he said, well, I'm a Pentecostal. That sounds good to me. So I believe that. I'm like, who wouldn't believe that? It was awesome. So, so good. This, friends, is why we are Anglicans, because we're organic spiritual. Yes, the word breaks in. The word of God is inspired. It has authority. It breaks through. It interrupts. It speaks to us. It encourages us. It challenges us. It does all kinds of great stuff. It brings light. It brings insight. It has power. Yes, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the presence, convicts, gentle, nudges, won't give up. And also, not just having sacraments, but having a full-on sacramental perspective. It's who we are. It's who God is. It's how he relates to his created world. Friends, we need a blood infusion. We need a blood infusion of Jesus' blood every week at least. We need to get it topped up. We need to get it, you know, refreshed. We need Jesus' new life in our bodies. 
This is why we celebrate Eucharist every week. And Eucharist is the height, it's the best of these things, but it's not the only one that comes of happily taking our embodiedness in a positive, serious manner. It's also just like we exercise. We exercise, we think about it, we make a plan, we're intentional, we do the things that will help us to get where we want to get for whatever kind of exercise it is. So we have a rule, a plan. In the spiritual life, for our embodiment, we can make a rule of life. Now the word rule right there freaks a lot of people out. It needn't. It just means a spiritual exercise habit plan. Purposefully chosen. It's not about trying to make God love us more. It's about programming ourselves to habitually and regularly and every day be able to believe what is true about how God feels about us. Be able to be in touch with him from our end. It's about reprogramming ourselves. It's about living fully in the body in a happy way with the Lord. The beautiful thing about a rule of life, as I practice it and as I encourage it, is it's something that with good basic steps that are good for anybody, you should discern for yourself in prayer and in counsel with a wise and trusted other. Renew it every year. Tweak it, move it, change it about. Priests in the diocese are required to have a rule of life that is that we renew every year, and that's fantastic. But it isn't just for us. It's for anybody. We're going to finish up this morning. We're going to finish up by letting Dorothy Day, we're going to learn a little bit from Dorothy Day. Give me a second and get the right page. So Dorothy Day was deeply influenced specifically by um, one of the ancient church fathers named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus is the one who spoke a lot about what does it mean to be a human being. He's the one who gave the now famous quote that the glory of God is the human being fully alive. The glory of God is the human being fully alive. He also finished that off, and that part often gets dropped. He said the, the, life of the, of the life of the human being is the vision of the glory of God. They work together. They influence each other. So this is from an essay about Dorothy Day. And author says, just sharing things that Dorothy learned from Irenaeus that were important to her. Human beings cannot fulfill the demanding gospel vision on our own. We are finite creatures. Creation is an ongoing process. Human finitude and the fact that we are becoming as opposed to already perfect is something that God already knows and he takes into account. God created human beings in God's own image and in that like God, we have control of ourselves. We're free. Human freedom is a generous gift from God. It gives us the agency to choose who we become, how we act and what we desire. We need sustenance. Creation progresses as the Father decided and commanded. The Son molded and shaped. The Spirit nourished and developed. From the beginning, God's hand fashioned a foundation in each individual. We are God's precious artifacts, so we can and should rely on God for sustenance. Dorothy found that slowing down actually allowed 
her to give and receive more. She stood by the principle, if we are rushed for time, sow time and we will reap time. Go to church, spend a quiet hour in prayer. You will have more time than ever and your work will get done. Dorothy believed God is always ready to come to our assistance. We simply need to train our hearts to see it. The key for Dorothy was carving out intentional time to listen to God. Ritual prayer offered a reliable framework from which to listen. Daily Mass was part of the rhythm of life for Dorothy. She writes poetically of the little miracles she encountered on the walk to church each morning. She noted, The splendid globe of sun, one street wide, frame at the foot of East 14th Street in early morning mists that greeted me on my way out to Mass was a miracle that lifted up my heart. The Eucharist was a source of renewal for Dorothy. She said, we often do not feel the action of the Son, but sitting before the Eucharist in the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist warms and gives health to the Spirit as the Son gives health to the body. The last bit is this. Dorothy Day said this. She said, young people say, what good can one person do? What is the sense of small effort? We must lay one brick at a time, take one step at a time. We can be responsible only for the one action of the present moment, but we can beg for an increase of love in our hearts that will vitalize and transform all our individual actions and know that God will take and multiply them as Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes. Dear friends, let's go to prayer. I invite you to simply be with the Lord. Just let him know that you're here, that you're present. Think of yourself as a unity of body, mind, and spirit. Know that God is pleased that you are this. Maybe just thank him. Say, hey, thanks for, wow, making me so amazing. Body, mind, and spirit all in one being. Maybe just ask God to let you know what he dreams about for you as such how he delights in you as body, mind, and spirit. Anything he might have in mind for you to see that you haven't seen before. Any way to live into that in a new way. 